Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to John 17. John 17. And uh, I want everyone to have their eyes on Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. John chapter 17. And uh, some weeks I put up stuff on the slides. Some weeks... Uh, it looks a little different. This week, uh, I, I really just, the reason I moved this back and sit here, because I really just kind of want Scripture to, I don't want there to be any doubt that Scripture is central. Okay, church? And uh, that includes for those of you online, by the way. Make sure you have your Bible. And uh, John chapter 17 is where we're going to be. And we are in the middle, uh, really near the end, actually, of this series on prayer. Asking really that the Lord would teach us from His Word, how do I pray? How do I do this? How do I do it well? More importantly, how do I do it biblically? Not just the way I may have been taught. And this will be kind of our last week focusing in on a specific text. And then next week... um, And those of you online, I especially want you to hear this if you're watching with us online. Next week, we're actually going to flip everything. So next week when you come, we're going to do like one song at the beginning, and then we're going to go right into the message. And you'll see why when we do it, okay? And then and then it's going to look a little different after that. So I'm telling you that so that you're not totally thrown off guard. And uh, if you if you're if you're one of those people who feels like, well, maybe I'll just sneak in a little before the message and then leave. Well, if you try to do that this next week, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Okay, don't do it. Um, So those of you online, make sure you you tune in right at kind of the beginning next week at right at about 1030 because we're going to start pretty quick. But today we're finishing up kind of three specific lessons on what we can learn from the life and ministry of Jesus about prayer. And we looked at, two weeks ago, we looked at this is how you should pray. Last week, we looked at this is how you shouldn't pray. And this week, we're going to look at one of the most forefront passages where we see Jesus himself praying. Now, the interesting thing about this, so if a couple of weeks ago we were in Matthew 6 and we looked at what's known as the Lord's Prayer. How many of you heard of that before? The Lord's Prayer, okay. Interesting, I, I, I've heard some other people say this and I would agree with it. Uh, Matthew 6 would be better titled the Disciples' Prayer because it's what Jesus told His disciples they should pray. You then should pray like this. However, John 17 is literally... The Lord's Prayer. It's literally Jesus Himself praying to the Father. And so I want us to think in terms of that. 
in John chapter 17. Now, in an interesting note in this too, there's a lot of people that when they think about an example of Jesus praying, the number one place they think of is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay, um, That would have been right before Jesus was uh, arrested and ultimately crucified. But John 17 happens before that time. Okay? So when we're thinking about the timeline of when this is taking place, Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. And he's anticipating what he has known is coming. But this is before his prayer in the garden where he sweats, literally sweats drops of blood and calls out to the Father. This is before that. And the reason we can know that it's before that is if you glance over briefly at chapter 18, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the book of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. That garden was the Garden of Gethsemane. So, just to put some timelines in frame of this. Now, when we ultimately, I really, I really want you to grasp one major thing out of this today. Uh, if you get nothing else out of this morning, this is what I want you to grab hold of. And it is that unity happens, and it is that unity happens when God's will becomes our will. Unity happens when God's will becomes our will. And you might be thinking, oh, I thought this was a series on prayer, not unity. The answer is yes. It's both. And I don't know that I would have said this same thing before I went through this study on prayer. But in fact, biblical prayer has the opportunity to be the most unifying factor for the church. Why? Because in prayer, when we look biblically at what prayer is supposed to be, and we go back to this whole time we spent in prayer, it comes down to this. You and I are in an equal state of utter dependence upon the Lord. We need God's intervention in our lives. And it doesn't matter where you have come from. It does not matter where you have been. It does not matter what season of life you are in right now. From the youngest of children in this place to the oldest of saints... We are equally in desperate need of something we cannot give ourselves. And that ultimately is the gospel. We are in need of a salvation that has been given to us only through the name of Jesus. But here's the thing, and you have experienced it. Just because people say, I am a Christian or I am a follower of Jesus does not mean that they end up pursuing the same things. And in fact, in many places, we look around and all we see within those who call themselves followers of Jesus is disunity. So how does that become different? And how can how we pray impact the unity of the church? That's what I believe we see here 
in Jesus' own words in what he prays to the Father. So I want to open us in prayer, and then we're going to start. And what we're going to do, we're just going to take piece by piece of John 17. And we're going to see an outline of how Jesus prayed and what was his focus and what can we learn. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the hope you've given us in Christ and the opportunity to open Scripture together. May you allow us to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers, that we would do what it says in accordance with what you've called us to do and to be as your church. Father, may the Gospel be central. May the good news that there is hope, there is salvation, there is redemption in Jesus' name, may that be the focal point of our time today for your glory above all else in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these things, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Pause a minute. Right out of the gate, we learn something about Jesus in his prayer life, and that's we learn about the posture of Christ. There's significance here in the biblical account that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, He continued to pray. Our posture in prayer reveals a lot about what we believe about the authority of the one we pray to. What what could be the significance of Jesus literally lifting his eyes to heaven? Number one, it's a place of humility. That there is one who is greater than I. I think about my kids. If I'm standing in a place and they come up and they, they stand right against me and they look straight up. Right? And they do so because, A, I'm much taller than them. But there is something about this like, Dad's a place, Dad, Dad's, a, Dad's a safe space, a place of authority. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking to him for guidance. And I just love that. I love when, when my kids come and they stand just right, even better if they're on my feet, you know, and they're standing so close and they're just looking right, right up my chest at my face. Dad, Dad, I need your help. And even more, uh, there's so many reminders of this that correlate to who God is as our father. Uh, my son, if you're not paying close enough attention to him, he'll grab, he'll grab your face and he'll go. Dad, Dad, make sure you're looking at me in the eyes. And so there's something about posture in prayer that communicates, God, I, I, I'm looking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing, I'm acknowledging you are the authority. You are the only one who has answers. You are the one that I'm seeking to serve. Now, posture in that it, it may not be looking to heaven. In fact, we see that in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And the tax collector, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. 
because he saw himself in light of his sin. And he, he stares because God, be merciful to me. What does the posture say? It says, God, I'm unworthy, but I'm still going to come. So right out of the gate, we see this in Christ. There's a posture of humility here that Jesus takes on. And then he continues forward with these words. Verse 4. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, everyone say you, that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. Everyone say you. Before the world existed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, here's a little trick, church family. When you're reading your Bible and there's a repeated word, you should go, this is important. There is significance here that I would do well to pay attention to. And in Jesus' prayer, it becomes so clear in his posture, but now in his praying, that his purpose was to do the will of his Father. His purpose was to do the will of him who sent him. This is not the only place we see this in Jesus' ministry. This is a consistent theme that we see Jesus actually reiterate over and over again. I'm not here to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. I do not speak on my own authority, but everything the Father gives, says to me, I say to you. His purpose is to do the will of his Father. Unity happens when God's will becomes our will. Jesus modeled this Better than any human being in all of history. Now there's significance as to why that is. Because here's where we intersect with one of the great mysteries theologically of scripture. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, wait, 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 wait. Jesus is saying, I'm, I, I, I'm doing the work of my father. I'm, I'm trying to sort this out. I thought Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yes, you are correct. How can that be? I'll preface this by saying this is a great mystery. Uh, The reason we profess this church, the reason that we hold to the deity of Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, is because the Bible paints this picture that that is who Jesus is. In fact, fact, one of the most foremost places where we can see that model is in Philippians chapter 2, where it says Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. It goes on to communicate that he gave himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God, Jesus. Hebrews, Jesus Being fully man was without sin. So the scripture communicates this. What does this look like? Verse 5 of John 17 is one of the most 
powerful texts to emphasize the pre-existence of Jesus. Where Jesus himself, these are the words of Christ, he says this, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, when? Before the world existed. Think about what that means. Jesus, in his intimate prayer to the Father, is saying, Father, I I long for the glory I had with you from the beginning of time. That is, that Christ existed with the Father before the world began. Colossians reiterates it and says that there's nothing on earth that was created apart from Christ. Fully God, fully man. Jesus himself models a dependence on the Father. He gave up the glory that he had with the Father in order to come to earth that you might be saved. Wow. And now, in this moment of vulnerability and transparency, Jesus says, Father, I long for that glory to be returned. And I read that and I go, I think I would too. You would too. You had been glorified with the Father in heaven and experienced that. I guarantee you, every single one of you would not have given that up for anyone else in this room. Just saying. And you might look around and go, yeah, I know. (laughs) And yet, to think the emphasis of the gospel is that while you were still a sinner, Christ came and died for you. Amazing. Amazing, rich truth. Jesus goes on, I've manifested your name. It's, it's your name. This fits with Matthew 6, right? Hallowed be your name. God, the, you would be glorified. You would be elevated by the, anyone and anything else. The people that you gave me, I've in, invested in, I've cared for. Verse 7, now they know that everything you've given me is from you. I've told them that it's not about me. <clears throat> it's about you. Father, it's about you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Unity happens when God's will becomes our will, church. <clears throat> now, the next section, there's really two, two more parts to this, where Jesus continues in prayer. But the first thing he continues in prayer for is his disciples, literally the 11 disciples that have committed to be with him. And you might go, well, wait, I thought there were 12. Yes, I'm going to explain that in a minute, okay? Based on what Jesus prays. And then, profoundly, Jesus prays for the future church. It's amazing focus on generational impact and discipleship. Starting in verse 9. I'm praying for them. And you might, the question you should ask is, Who is them? Who are they? We'll get to that in verse 12. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There's this unity I'm talking about. 
that Jesus is praying for for the church. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is where we can discern that Jesus here is praying specifically for his disciples. Because he identifies, I'm, not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. Who would that be? Judas. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy. Get this, I love this, that Jesus prays this over them. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Now, if you're a note taker, I encourage you just to draw a little arrow in your margin and write Romans 12, 2 there. And Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Jesus is identifying this about his disciples. And there's a grave warning here for anyone who chooses to follow after Jesus. If his disciples experienced the world hating them because they were not part of the world. Well, weren't they present in the world? Yes, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about being an ambassador for Christ. That you literally represent another kingdom in the kingdom you dwell in. You know, that's the church, right? The church is meant to be the place where the ambassadors for the kingdom of God dwell. And that becomes priority. The world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. If you choose to follow after Christ, expect to be ridiculed. Expect not to be liked. Expect not to be popular. This is how this goes. And not only is that how it goes in Matthew, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus communicates, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Now, this is not an excuse for you to go around and be a grouchy, opinionated person. And when people dislike you, you go, see, I'm being sacrificial for the name of Jesus. No, you're just... Stirring up your own ego. That's what you're doing. Hey, the follower of Jesus is called in Scripture to be someone of humility, but someone who boldly proclaims the gospel. Now, that means if I share Christ with someone close to me, and they ridicule for me, ridicule me for that, praise the Lord. If, if I'm committed to stepping into this and in a scary situation professing the love of Jesus, and walking in a way that the world will look at and go, you are an idiot. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But that's really hard to do. Jesus modeled this. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus modeled this, it was 
the religious elite of the day that had the biggest problem with him. It's kind of a humbling thing to think about, isn't it? What would it look like for the church to be unified in such a way that the world looked in and went, these people are crazy in a good way. Okay, Don't go off the rails. All right? Look at verse 15. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Protection, not prevention. This is exactly what Jesus commanded the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Deliver us from evil. How many of you at some time or another have been like, you know what, it would just be a lot easier if you would just kind of save us out of this dirty, gross world. I I think of that often. Lord, come back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet Jesus' own prayer for his disciples was, God, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Why? That should be the question we ask. Why? Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What that means is their priority is not the world. Colossians 3, fix your eyes on the things above, not the things that are on earth. 17, sanctify, that's to set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Everyone say sent. Sent out. This is really important. Why would Jesus pray that God wouldn't take them out of the world? Because he's sending them, per the Father's commands, into a world that desperately needs the hope of Jesus. Sent them into the world, verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself. That's, I set myself apart that they also may be set apart in truth. Jesus doesn't stop here. And this is, this is one of the most profound Aspects of Jesus' prayer in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, not just for these 11. I'm not just praying for them. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. I don't know about you, but at times it can feel discouraging to share the gospel with people. How many of you have been discouraged by trying to do that before? Be honest. It's hard. You know why it's hard? Because it's not attractive. That's one of the reasons there's a lot of false teachers out there who try to convince you that it is attractive. That it will give you earthly success and earthly possessions and earthly wealth. No, 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 no. What did Jesus just say a little bit? The world has hated them. It's not popular. And yet Jesus is sending them out. And is praying specifically for the ones who will believe in Christ through the word of his disciples. Wow. Before the church is even built, the church hasn't come into existence here yet. Jesus has already prophetically declared what's going to take place after he dies and resurrects and ascends. These 11 are going to take this message to the world. And Jesus is praying for all those who would receive it. That they may all be what? One. Everyone say one. 
And what's the example of oneness here? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Church family, the number one transformational image that we can portray to the world is a unity that you can find nowhere else in the world. And here's the problem. When we get so caught up in pointless controversies amongst each other and distracted by things that don't matter, the world looks in at that and they say, good grief, they're just as much of a mess as the rest of the world. Why would I want to be a part of that? Unity happens when God's will becomes our will. Not the other way around. It's not when our will becomes God's will. Some of you would like that. There's times in my life I would really like that. You know what, God? This would be really nice. And yet Psalms tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord and He will give us the desires of our heart. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Jesus' prayer here is that they would be one, not just the eleven, but everyone who would believe because of their ministry. So that the world may believe that the Father sent Christ. And in John 13, 35, Jesus tells them, They will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Unity happens when God's will becomes our will. The glory, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one. Everyone say one. Even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Wow. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Yet another moment of Jesus articulating his life with the Father before the world began. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. Here's here's here's. We've walked through this passage because I I want you to see what the desire of the heart of Christ was shortly before he was crucified. But you may be sitting here and wondering, well, okay, how does this have any application to us? Well, for one, I pray that you see in the midst of this, the heart of Jesus is not free. I want to be careful how I say this, but I, I want to be really direct with you. The heart of Christ is not for you to simply show up here on a Sunday morning. That is not what Jesus prayed for in John 17. 
What Jesus prayed for was A, for his disciples right then and there to be protected from the evil ones so that as they were sent out, they would boldly proclaim that which the world was hating them for. And then his prayer is that all of those who believe because of the message that was given, that they then would follow in that and be united together as one people. Church family, the church is always one generation away from dying and is dependent on every single one of you as a corporate whole to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ to a world that needs it. God has sovereignly appointed the church, not the building, the church. You are the church to do what Christ has called us to do. And not only called us to do it, He modeled it perfectly. And listen to these final words of Jesus in verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' heart in this is for you to experience the love of the Father that can only come through Jesus. So how does that happen, church? Ultimately, the desire of our leaders is that we would be a a church body united around the things that matter. And that we would be able to identify the things that just don't. But it takes us committing to that corporately together for that to take place. And so I just want to give you two application points. How do we do that? How do we unite together in prayer? How does that impact how we pray? How do we pray like Jesus? And the first thing is that God's will must trump our will. God's commands must trump our desires. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. God's will trumps our will. That has to be step one. If we're going to be united as a church body, that has to be priority. God's will, God's word, okay? The will of God is the word of God. Why do we open the Bible together? It's because we need to be united around God's will, not my will, not the leader's will, not your will, God's will. Amen? This is important distinctive, okay? But here's the second one, and it's probably more challenging for us. Others must become more important than self. In Matthew 22, Jesus gave the two greatest commandments. The first one was just like what I just said, love God. And John, since John said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Okay, tie those two together. Secondly, love others. How you pray says a lot about what your focus is. Your absence of prayer says a lot about where you're at. My desire 
is that you would experience the love of Jesus at a level that maybe you've never experienced. And that the prayer of Christ in John 17 will be fulfilled within our family. But that it wouldn't stay here. Rather, that in unity, when we look around church and we see Jesus has fulfilled our greatest need, that we would be motivated and propelled into a world that desperately needs that same love, that same hope, the same peace that can only come through Christ. You, church family, hold within your own hands the greatest gift to all humanity. And together, we have got to commit to taking that gift to a world that needs it so desperately. I can't do it on my, on my, on my own. Our staff here can't do it by themselves. Our leaders can't do it, do it here by themselves. Our staff leaders and volunteers can't do it here by themselves. We, right here in Canton, Illinois, can't do it by ourselves. And that is why God has built the church globally. And you know what's amazing about that? It doesn't matter where you go. There are brothers and sisters in Christ united under the same gospel. Unity happens when God's will becomes our will. Church family, may we step into a pursuit of the will of God. May that become more important than anything else. And it starts with the good news that there is hope in Christ. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, here's, here's where I want you to wrestle with this, okay? The hope and peace that's given to us in Christ has to begin with our own surrender to Christ. And you're the only one, between you and God, you're the only one who knows where you're really at. But you need to recognize that there is a salvation that has been given. It paid the price for your sin. But you have to personally choose to believe that and step into it with all you have. To surrender your life to Christ. Scripture doesn't make it clear what that should look like. Some people say... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to the Lord in prayer and I'm going to surrender my life to him. If that's you, that's great. Some people would say, I just recognize in myself a need for Jesus and I lift my hands and I say, Lord, I surrender to you. That's great. The scripture says you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But here's the thing. It can't be your own doing. It's not of works. It's a gift that you have to choose whether you're going to receive it or not. And every one of you will walk out of here today having made a decision. Whether that decision is I'm going to choose to follow Jesus or I'm going to do my own thing. My desire would be that you would not leave here without first saying I'm, I've surrendered to Christ. And I see in this that Jesus, even in John 17, was praying for me. As one who would believe as the result of the faithful teachings of his own disciples. Do you grasp that? How we sit under the teaching and instruction of God's word by which he used his own disciples 
to put into writing that you and I could be sitting here today uh, understanding what God has called us to. And so whatever that needs to look like as we sing this final song, whether that's up here or in your seat or wherever it might be, I want you to challenge, I want us corporately to challenge ourselves to ask the question, have we surrendered ourselves to the will of God? Because until we do that together, we will continue to struggle with disunity amongst each other. And I love you guys. I'm so thankful for you. And I've been so encouraged as I've watched you grow and continue to flourish and understand what God's word says. But we're still here, which means we still have work to do. But we don't do that work alone. We do that work together. Why? Because together we're united in Christ. May that be so. May that be true in our singing. May that be true in our prayer. May that be true in our workplaces as we go out into a world. May that not stop here. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, you are holy and righteous. You are good. You are gracious to us. God, now in this time, may we respond fully to the truth of your word. and The gospel that has been given to us. The good news that there is salvation in Christ. Lord, give us a peace in the midst of this, knowing that Jesus paid it all. And yet at the same moment, a humility to recognize that I have to choose as I leave this place. Who am I going to serve? If I'm a servant of man, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. May we leave here as a church family committed to serving Jesus. To walking in obedience to your commands. All of this for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.